0: You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. Here tonight, I'm going to continue on the Study that we've been doing on 1 Corinthians, and I started this last Wednesday, um, and I'm pulling the notes that I had uh, created for teaching at Northeast Christian College. Uh, they had asked me to do a General Epistles and First and Second Corinthians class there. Uh, technically, First and Second Corinthians doesn't belong in General Epistles, but we had added it to the course, and so uh, with all of that. I needed to create the curriculum for it, and so we've come up with this study. And so I'm giving it to you here tonight. This is, I'll I'll call it part two, I guess. And uh, just before we begin, I wonder if we could just pray together, ask God's hand to be upon the rest of the service. God, we are so thankful for everything that you've already done. God, you are so good to us. Lord, I pray right now that you would let your word rest in each and every one of our hearts. God, I pray that you would speak to us mightily. God, that you would allow us to to be changed and transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to give you a little bit of background once again here uh, on Corinth, on the book of 1 Corinthians, just in case you've forgotten from last week. Just a bit of a recap, if we could go to the second slide. We have here the theme for the book. Paul, he the Apostle Paul, he calls the Corinthians to be a holy church and a challenging culture. And this is why I deem it so important to speak to the church about today. How many know that the Bible is still relevant for the church today? Amen. Even though it was written many, many moons ago, uh, it is still valuable to us here today, the living word of God. And, and so this is the challenge that we still face, trying to be a holy church and a culture that is constantly challenging that and uh and so we we go on to the next slide here and it tells us that it was written by paul to the church in corinth uh between 80 54 and 56 and we'll see from the next slide here that uh, corinth it was found in, in this location not too far from athens and uh and so you can see some of the places that he would have traveled around to this church was established by paul uh, in 8051. 51. So when we're reading this letter, the church is only four or five years old. They're just babies, four or five years old. I know uh, I still call my kids babies every now and again. They're like, we're not babies, even though they're seven and nine. Um, but four and five years old, and it's just a young work. And Paul, he's heard some news about things that have been transpiring in the church, and so he wants to write a letter to them. Uh, to try to help them out and uh, so we'll go to the next slide here and um, and we'll start into this so we're not sitting and waiting for the lord to move uh, but we are actively waiting on the lord who is moving in us consider the restaurant analogy we welcome jesus to our table we invite him to make his request of us we scurry about making his requests a reality, and that's what the church is all about, but the people of Corinth, they had forgotten this, and it's so easy to do in any church, the first century or the 21st century, it does not matter, to slip into the mentality that the congregation is here to serve me, rather than how can I serve the Lord? John F. Kennedy, he stated, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And uh, I believe that if Paul had written that, he would have used the word church instead, asking not what your church can do for you, rather what you can do for your church. And uh, we're not an entertainment industry. If you've come to the church to be entertained, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not very entertaining. We are the church of the living God, called to do his will. In our culture today, with so many choices, it is easy to walk out the door, see all the churches as a menu you get to select from. What type of flavor will I choose this week? Our, uh, our culture has become uncommitted, treading whatever path is easiest, whatever way that doesn't make me feel conviction. Being a Christian, living like a Christian, is only difficult when we have to decide between what's popular and what's godly. Oh, you know, the crowd is over here. That's what's popular. There's, you know, you see how many people are gathering over here, but what's godly? Being a servant of the Most High is only hard when everyone isn't going the same way. When you have friends family members, and fellow believers that aren't living like they should, we begin to question whether following God as hard as what we are is worth it. Is it really worth it? Well, they are doing this, and they still love God. Maybe it's not so bad. But we always come back to Scripture. What does Scripture say about it? As the church, as leaders of our homes, we need to find the balance between living in this world but not Allowing the world to be a part of us. Not getting accustomed to cultural trends and allowances. Is it really that bad? Is it really necessary? Everyone is doing it. It must be okay. And let me just heed a warning to the church today. What you tolerate or entertain or condone will become the norm for your children, and they will accept it as being okay. As parents, we are always trying to communicate truth to our kids, always trying to impart to them what is truth. It's not enough to say, because I said so. That might have worked many moons ago. We've got to sit down and explain to our kids what the word of God says about things that are going on or being promoted in our world and why it's right or wrong. We are called to be active servants in God's church and we can only do that if we understand our role. And let me, under, let me help you understand here tonight that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to have concerns. It's okay to ask why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we come to church so often? Have you ever been asked that? Why do you go to church so often? Let me give you a scriptural example here about being servants in God's church. It may seem quite obvious to you uh, now that the Corinthians consider themselves as the ones who are being served. Paul, Apollos, and Peter were their entertainers, as it were. And preach us a fine sermon and make sure you have funny stories in there, too. Today, when a church calls a pastor to lead their congregation, they say that he is coming to serve them. But biblically, who are the servants of the church? Yes, the pastors and ministers, they're included in that title of servant. But Paul says it differently. He says, uh, he says in verse 1, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God, with the mysteries God has revealed. Some translations may say ministers of Christ, but the word is really servant here. Actually, the literal meaning of the word, if we derive it back, means under rower, under rower. A common sight in Corinth was the passing of a Roman war galley through the nearby channel. So the Corinthians knew that the lowest deck of the galley was made of single rows of benches on either side, on both sides of the ship where the rowers sat. That's where they were. Then on a little deck raised above them, all where the rowers could see him, was the captain of the ship. When he said move, they moved. When he said stop, they stopped. It was their job to obey the orders of the captain precisely. And this is the word Paul used to describe the church. We are the under rowers of Christ. He is the captain. When he says move, we're going to move. When he says stop, we're going to stop. We are the under rowers. And now you can understand that if someone gets out of sync, if someone doesn't follow the voice of the captain, it affects every under rower. some people think that if they walk into the church, no one will notice. But believe me, we notice. We notice. I don't know if I dare tell this story, but Jolene and I went out on the canoe recently. And uh, neither of us are our expert paddlers. <laughs> oh, we got that boat into the water. Me, my wife, my mom, and uh, Levi and Sadie, and we headed out. And we just thought, this is going to be a grand adventure. And the waves, uh, the wind picked up, and the waves were were uh, pushing us about. And let's just say that we weren't in sync with each other and so we weren't heading in the, in the right direction at any moment of time we were constantly just wavering back and forth and i was in the back i was supposed to be helping steer was supposed to be helping go about and i didn't know what i was doing and needless to say after about 15 20 minutes of rowing we look over to the shore and we're the exact same place that we were when we started <laughs> and so we decided okay we're gonna we're, we're just gonna end this and so we went back to the shore and decided to do another activity that would be more fitting to us but we can see how if somebody is at a sink we notice we're a body if you stub your toe it's not just your toe that responds is it your whole body goes out of whack, and you let out a yelp. <laughs> and you start muttering, usually. And This word shows up in Acts, this word under row, shows up in Acts where Paul and Barnabas took John Mark along on a journey to be their minister, to be their helper. Does that mean he led morning devotions? No, it meant that he was the one who ran errands, managed the baggage, made travel arrangements, He did what they told him. Paul said they were servants of Christ. While the Corinthians would like to control their preachers, Paul reminds them that they serve Christ, not the Corinthians. What's more, they are two under rowers and should be serving Christ also, not sitting around being waited on. And he says in verse 2, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. As I am called to faithfully wait upon the Lord by revealing his word, you too must prove faithful in discharging your duties. We are stewards of what God has given us. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you come here, but this is not your church. It's not. It's God's church. I used to say, welcome to the greatest church in the world, and I used to get... Misunderstood by almost everybody that greeted me on the way at the door. They didn't understand. I'm not trying to build a community or build a brand by stating that. I'm reinforcing what Christ said in Matthew chapter 16. On this rock, I will build my church. There's nothing greater than the church of God. His church is the greatest church in the world. His following is the greatest following in the world. You won't find salvation in any other name, but in the name of Jesus. Jesus. And it's only going to be what he has built upon the foundation of the cross that will last forever. We are underneath the authority of the Lord and his church. And it is his job to tell us what he wants the church to be, not the other way around. We can't tell God this is how we think the church should be. The Corinthians were judging Paul and saying that he was boring and old. Apollos was young and exciting and kept their attention. People were falling out of the windows when Paul preached. So they judged Paul, not by the words he spoke, but by the way he said them. But Paul replied, he replied in verses 3 and 4, he said, I care very little if I am judged by you, wow, or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me it wasn't saying that he goes unjudged it's just that it's the lord it's what matters to the lord that's what mattered to paul it's not that human evaluation does not have its purpose and it doesn't have its place we grow and develop through the advice and counsel of those who observe our talents what paul is saying though is that there comes a point where ultimately we have to ask ourselves who am i trying to please am i doing this for you will i change my plans to fit someone else's agenda Where does the spirit's nudging come into play? In the end, we must serve in such a way that pleases the Lord. That's all that matters. We're not going to get to heaven and stand before him, and he's going to ask us, how many people did you please? Paul's reply suggests that he knows what they are talking about, and he wants them to know it matters very little. God called him to do a job, and he's going to do it. Christ is the final judge of what he does. And in verse 5, we see he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Leave it to Jesus to judge, not only what we do, but what others do. He knows our motives. He knows our heart. He knows our pride. He also knows more, about how to use us beyond what we can even perceive or understand ourselves. This little thing called a mouth has caused me more grief, more turmoil. I get myself into more troubles when it opens up than anything else. I mentioned last week how the Corinthian church was amazingly gifted. They had all the gifts mentioned in Scripture and then some. The church lacked nothing, and they knew it. They were proud about that fact. As a result, they judged those who did not have what they had. Well, the, that this church hasn't reached to our capacity yet. The implication was that if such and such a person did not have this gift or this understanding, that they lacked full spirituality. Again, this is an example of parceling out God as if he could be broken down into chunks. We we have all the chunks of God. <laughs> Paul, he quickly rebukes this attitude by addressing the source of the gifts they possess. He says in verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What makes you different from anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? God gave the gift and puts a variety of gifted people together and calls it a church for a specific purpose known only fully to him. He has a clear picture of how we fit together. So who can boast about one gift when all are needed? Who can boast and say that they have the best gift when all are needed in the body of Christ? The underlying deception that has gripped the people of the Corinthian church was in large part a reason for their boasting of pride. They thought that they had made it spiritually. Oh, we've made it. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says... He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. You know, you might think that he's trying to be truthful here, but he's actually mocking them. Already you have all you want. What else could you want? He kind of mocks them for their self-satisfaction for having arrived. The illusion was that they thought that possessing a certain gift marked them as having arrived. And Paul tells us what a servant of Christ should expect from a world that is hostile to Christ. Fools for Christ, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's what he goes on and talks about from verses 9 to 13. This is how the church is perceived to the world. Fools, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. These are not the titles of those who are accepted. I can't imagine... If, you know, you would invite me to come and try out to be the assistant to the pastor, and that wasn't the actual title. It was try out to be the scum. (laughs) Try out to be the refuse of the world. The most telling metaphor Paul uses of servants for Christ is that they are like the prisoners on display at the end of a king's parade, the conquered who are sentenced to die. They had accommodated the world around them so much that the world was not persecuting them anymore. Oh, we've finally arrived. The world is no longer on our doorstep. The world is no longer threatening to close us down because they don't agree with our message. The world was not laughing at them. They had adjusted their teaching so that it matched enough to fit with the world's doctrine, and the world said it was great. They fit in. They weren't so different anymore. They weren't a threat to the worldly lifestyles around them. They could sit in their church services without feeling conviction. They changed their actions so that nobody was offended by them, and they never had to tell anybody that something was wrong. Doesn't that sound like an ideal church? That's what this letter is about, as we will see, and that is the danger that the church faces today, selling out, becoming like the world so that the world accepts and tolerates us. There are eight more verses to deal with here, but I think that we can sum them all up in one phrase that reflects verses 9 to 13. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. What a contrast. Paul invites them to imitate his walk with God. What confidence to say, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. But that is the challenge of the servant of God today, isn't it? That's the challenge of each and every one of you sitting in the pews here tonight. That's our challenge. We're telling the world, follow me as I follow Christ. They're what they see. You are what they see. To be exemplary of Christ. I can speak 10,000 words to you, but one action will tell you more about Christ. Jesus said... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Biblical leadership, I've often said, is, is completely opposite from world leadership. In world leadership, we talk about climbing the ladder of success. The higher you go, the more people are underneath of you, the more people serve you. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. We don't sit back and have everybody serve us because we've made it. Oh, I'm the associate pastor. All of you guys are going to serve me. That's not how it works. In God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, we are all equal. In God's kingdom, we all serve. In God's kingdom, there's no there's no spectators. We don't sit back waiting to get served on, but we're all participating in what God is doing right now, right now in his church. And that's how... That's how godly leadership works. This is a pattern that we are to follow. All hands are busy. All people are actively involved. Paul said, when they were cursed, they blessed their persecutors. When they were slandered, they answered kindly. He was not trying to be a super saint who lived up to an unattainable level. Paul and the other apostles were sent out into the cruel, rough, ruthless world and like Jesus, lived in the very depths of the reality of life in order to show us how to handle it. You know, we've been there, we've done this, we've written the book on it, and we get, to, we get to read that. We get to read their experiences about what they went through and how they handled it underneath the unction of the Holy Ghost. And I am fully aware that I am to be the model of Christ to you. And let me be honest with you here tonight, That some days it's more than I can bear. You know I'm not perfect. And I know that you know that I'm not perfect. But I also know that that challenge is yours as well. You are called to be like the master too. To be Christ to each other and to our community. The topic, it changes from judging Paul to how they are judging each other. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul had discovered that there was ongoing sin that was being permitted taking place in the church. The headlines of chapter 5 would read something like this, church leader sleeping with stepmom. Oh, how's that for church gossip spreading around? And yet this was going on, and it was being acceptable in the church. Nobody was saying anything about it. That was, that was just the norm in their church. In the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, we get a chance to read about how the church in Corinth was handling the situation and how Paul instructs them to change their tactics toward the person who was involved in this immorality. The church consists of people who are on a different place in their spiritual maturity. We're not all at the same place, and that's okay. But we still need to turn from sin and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us you don't have to be perfect to be part of God's church if we waited until then we'd never be part of God's church but we're all heading for the same goal walking this narrow pathway called life and people are dumping stuff in front of us to triple on along the way and we're just keep on keep on walking in the pathway you just keep on walking on that narrow pathway but amazingly Paul he tells us that the church was proud He says that the church is proud, almost as if they were so centered on the doctrine of God's grace that they were able to allow anyone into their church, anything into their church. They were taking the motto, motto, always a place for you, to the extreme. And Paul's instructions are very clear about what to do with such a person. He says this, he says... Uh, in verse 11 of chapter 5, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunk, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Whoa, whoa. What about acceptance and inclusion, man? Don't associate with those who claim to be Christians, but who are involved in ongoing unrepentant sin. Wait a minute. That sounds judgmental. What about let him who is without sin cast the first stone? Let's talk about it. Why is Paul so adamant that the Christian church not tolerate willful and unrepentant sin among people who claim to be believers? Let's just back up a few verses. Firstly, the church must not tolerate unrepentant sin for the sake of the unrepentant person. It says in verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Paul isn't talking about some sort of ceremony where Satan actually comes walking into the church and takes the erring believer away. No. But he is saying that if a believer chooses to remain in the sinful pattern of life after they have been been given a chance to repent, then the church is to give them over to the choice that they have made and to help clarify for them the choice that they are making. If the person is allowed to continue sinning and still be a part of the fellowship of the church, then they might never fully understand the consequences of their sin. And the goal of this action that he states here, Paul, that Paul is stating on the part of the church, is not to embarrass or hurt the person who is in the sin. And though that may happen along the way, the goal is that through the pain of being disfellowship from the church, the person will be brought to a place of repentance. That's what he means by the sinful nature may be destroyed and a spirit saved on the day of the Lord. It is far more important that the person come face to face with the ugliness of their sin now and repent of it than for them to be allowed to continue in that sin and stand before God with that sin still unrepentant. If there is no consequence for sin, it is unlikely the sinning person will have any motivation to change. Well, I did it and no lightning came from heaven. Actually, I'll sidetrack here for a little bit. We were, Levi and I, pa- this past week, we were the bachelors. My wife and I, my wife and Sadie, they were away taking care of my mother-in-law, uh, who was in need. And, and so Levi, Levi and I, we were at home, and it started thundering and lightning outside. And, and uh, I love it. Levi, he, he doesn't like it so much. And so he's sitting at the kitchen table. And the patio door's right there, and then two windows on the side. And as he's sitting there, all of a sudden, the largest bolt of lightning I've ever seen come that close to me, came that close to our house. And you know how they say that usually the roll of thunder will tell you how far away the lightning is? Well, it was instant, immediate, just boom, and it came down, shook the whole house. And Levi, of course, he jumped up. He was scared. And I said, it's okay, buddy. We didn't get hit. We're all right. And then all of a sudden we hear woo, woo, the fire truck's coming, and uh, I know I'm pretty good impersonation, so I'm here all week. Um, so I, uh, anyways, I uh, I went outside and my neighbor, he, he, him and his wife got into their truck and they went down the street and come to find out the house in behind us, it, the lightning came down and it hit their tree and the tree was wrapped around a. Uh, uh, a metal fence, and the metal fence was tied into their house. And so the lightning, it hit the tree, ran down the metal fence, and completely blew the siding and the eavesdrop off the back of their house. Just boom. And so, of course, they called the fire department. If there was ever a reason to call the fire department. And so, you know, uh, we, we think just because something like that doesn't happen, we're okay. We didn't, feel or sense or uh, there, there was nothing significant that happened. God didn't strike me dead, so it must be okay. But what does the word of God say about it? There is more at stake here than simply the spiritual state of that person. The church can't tolerate sin for the sake of the church, as we will see for the next few verses. It says, uh, "Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a le- little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For church, for Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven throughout Scripture is symbolic of sin." When sin is allowed to go unchecked in the whole of the church, it does not simply affect that person. It affects everybody. It has a way of raising up its ugly head here and there and everywhere. And now that Paul has dealt with where their minds and hearts were, he begins dealing with their immorality. In chapter 6, we'll turn over to the next chapter, he talks about how Christians should settle differences of opinion with each other, disputes, or even instances of personal damages. 20 years ago, someone standing on the street corner whose elbow was brushed by a passing truck would likely say, thank God I'm alive. And now, if a person in the same situation got into that situation, they would shout, thank God I'll be rich. Apparently, the Corinthians were quite fond of law and lawsuits. It was actually entertaining for them to be a part of a legal action and try to figure out the penalties. They would have loved Judge Judy. And, of course, this being the culture, the habit of bringing a lawsuit against someone seeped into the church. The Apostle Paul was not impressed. Not everything needed to be a lawsuit. Not everything needed to be brought to the court. There was a need for it, but not always. And he, Paul, he writes and says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? The Bible clearly tells us that we are going to be part of God's judgment of the world at the end of times. We are going to rule and reign with Christ. It seems that Paul is telling us to start practicing now for that time. We will even sit on judgment of angels who fell away from God. Imagine that for a moment. And what Paul is talking about here is something that we fail to understand regularly. He is speaking eschatologically. He is speaking of the end of time. However, he intends for the church to understand this as a present reality. We are to live now as if it were the end. We're to act as the church now as if it was the end. We are to live here on this earth as if we were already in heaven. Since we do live here in this world for the time being, are we never allowed to use the secular legal system? Actually, Paul did use the Roman legal system to his advantage when he claimed Roman citizenship. Acts chapter 21, Paul was arrested, wrongfully accused. As they were about to whip him to make him confess, Paul asked, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? So as stated, there is a purpose and a time to do that, but not for everything not for the trivial matters the real shame is that the dirty laundry of the church is aired out for the whole world to see he says but instead one brother goes to the law against another and this in front of unbelievers the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already what a lawsuit within the church says to the watching world is you christians are no better than we are you do not have anything different than we have You have to have a judge come and settle matters between you and force one to do the right thing. What have you got to offer us? What results from this exhibition is that the cause of Christ is degraded in society. So he says this, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. Christ did not come to exert his personal rights but to surrender them for the sake of others. There is nothing that resembles Jesus more in us than when we surrender our rights, even at the risk of personal hurt, so that the gospel can be preserved. We must believe that justice will come one day. And when we arrive at the place that we were last week, we arrive at this scripture, and this is the context that we come into the scripture. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, nor, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. Ye are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, what this looks like is a misplaced passage that goes better with chapter 5 where we learned about the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. But with the next passage, or with the next passage that he talks about, in fact, right where it is is right where it belongs. Paul lists all the inappropriate behaviors and says none of this fits the example of a follower of Christ. This is clear. Those who have not been transformed by having a relationship with Jesus cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Those that still persist with the lifestyles that we read in Acts in in verses 9 and 10 cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so we still preach the word of God. It doesn't matter about my opinion. I know we want to be inclusive, I know we want to be accepting. But my opinion does not matter. What matters is the word of God, because it's going to be the word of God that judges. It's going to be the word of God. It's going to be God himself that we stand in front of. Paul writes to the Romans and says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We could say that this this has been all about lawsuits and be done with it. However, with this message, what this message is really about is the way that we treat each other in the church. How do we settle our differences and our disputes in the body of Christ? Do we talk about them and the crazy things that they do behind their backs? Oh, my goodness, did you see what Brother Hanscom did? What a kook. (laughs) No, we don't. We don't do that. Really, what Paul is asking us to do is consider our behavior as a church, as the family of God, and to ask ourselves, how are we treating each other? Because the world is watching. Whether we like it or not, we've got all eyes on us and wondering what makes us different. Why are they different? Why are they, why are they so persistent on being separate? Why can't they just be like us? They hear things and know things about us. We get a reputation that is hard to shake. Have we been transformed? Are we different? Do we love each other the way Jesus told us to? This is what he tells his disciples in John chapter 13. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's how they're going to know. The type of love that you show, the type of love that you give to everybody else, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples. Okay. Okay. I'll come off that for a little bit. It's time for Body Break with Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod. Those Canadian health and fitness experts, do you remember those? We had commercials about them all through my childhood. Fond memories. You know those commercials on TV where a man and woman come on and tell you that all the stuff you're eating is killing you? That's them. Did you know that a can of soda contains five tablespoons of sugar? Or is it ten? Do you know how much fat there is in a juicy, delicious quarter pounder smothered in cheese pickles? I don't care, but could I have a poutine with that? Hal and Joan would have a tantrum if we would eat this kind of food in front of them. They would suggest a serving of carrots, a pound of broccoli, Mm. and three bananas, an apple, an orange, and a grapefruit a day. If your body matters to you and your health is at stake, then you take these people seriously. When I say your body matters, you probably think of body break and good health habits. But when I say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, what kind of reaction do you get? Corinth was a city obsessed with the worship of fornication. A thousand priestesses from the temple Aphrodite would come down into the city at night and ply their trade. This was part of their worship in their city. When Paul said, your body matters, he was addressing this specific issue, sexual immorality. It seems that some Christians in Corinth had taken the message of grace in Paul's own words to suggest that they had all kinds of freedom in any different direction of life. And to this gross misunderstanding, Paul, he replies with this, is what we do with our bodies of any great spiritual consequence in relationship to Christ? Is, is what we do on the outside really necessary? Does it really matter? Well, let's talk about that. If you were a Christian at Corinth at this time, you would be enjoying the truth of God's grace. I am forgiven, set free from sin by the cross of Christ, and there is nothing that I need to do in order to earn my salvation. You would also conclude that all things are permissible because we are no longer underneath the law. You can even eat meat offered to idols now, as long as it doesn't offend anybody. As we will see later, idols are of no consequence to believers, so what does it matter? But what is of consequence to believers? This is what he says in verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is what Paul told them, everything is permissible. And they were using these words in a context beyond what Paul meant. Yes, legalism has no place in the Christian life. Legalism is a, an extreme attempt to do what pleases God. But on the other end of extremism is license that is, life without any rules. I've got God's grace, I can do whatever I want, God will forgive me. So Paul corrects their vision, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. I'm allowed to do anything, but I must not allow myself to become a slave to anything. If your freedom hurts you or it hurts others, freedom is no longer a good thing. If your freedom allows you to indulge in certain activities that are addictive and you become a slave to them, you have lost your freedom. You are no longer free anymore. We know what those vices are, and you know how they hurt you and others. The things that are not good for you are always enslaving. They tend to be habit-forming or prideful. They give a certain degree of pleasure, physically or emotionally, and you keep on doing them because that feeling doesn't last. Each time you think the high will last just a little bit longer, but it doesn't. Some of the logic for living this way, for experimenting with freedom, came from a dominant philosophy at the time this was their philosophy and Paul he quotes it in scripture he says food for the stomach and stomach for the food that was one of the the phrases that they had in this time food for the stomach and stomach for the food this saying in Corinth represented bodily appetites the logic goes like this the stomach was designed for food and food satisfied the needs of the stomach therefore it is natural and right to satisfy your need whenever it arises When you are hungry, you go to the refrigerator. It's not against the law. No one will arrest you for doing that. I've done it all my life. No one has ever arrested me. The same is true, the Corinthians said of other things as well. Our bodies are made for it, so it is natural and right to satisfy those urges as well. Paul, he responds to this logic and says that they are not the same thing at all. He says this. He says, food for the stomach. He quotes their their saying, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Really, the, sta- the saying should be that the body's appetite for food is temporary. God has no permanent plan for the stomach, and it'll be destroyed someday. But God does have a permanent plan for the body. Our digestive functions certainly have a place in this world. I'm thankful for them. But sexuality is far more profound and has a deeper meaning. Food only nourishes the body. Sexuality, according to the Bible, touches the soul, the psyche, our relationships, everything that we are. It is physical and spiritual. If the Corinthians were saying that the body did not matter, he understood his soul to be saved, and what he did in his body was of no account. It didn't matter. Only the spirit matters. And Paul, he rebukes that and says, the body matters too. Otherwise, why did Jesus take on flesh and blood if the body didn't matter? He did it to show us that these bodies matter. These bodies that we were given were created for the Lord. Your body matters to the Lord. What happens to you matters to the Lord. And He says this. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. The resurrection is proof that our bodies are not dispensable. As we get older, we find out that that is to be the case. They're not dispensable. We need them. We depend on them. That God has a plan for these bodies, that these bodies are raw material for some glorious recreation in the next life. And your body is part of the salvation plan and therefore is valuable to God. Then he says this in verse 15 to 17. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her body for it is said the two will become one flesh? But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We are told that we are members of Christ himself, part of his body. We are told that marriage symbolizes the, uni- the union between Christ and the church, his bride. On the one hand, Paul, he speaks to human couples. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I am running out of time. Can we all stand? I'll come to a close. He's talking about Christ and the church. Matters what happens to us, not just on the inside, it matters what happens to us on the outside. In Corinth, there was intimacy without intention, there was communion without commitment. And Paul, he advises them. I'll skip through this very quickly. He advises them to flee from that. Flee from that. Be careful. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I'll end with this. The functions of our body are meant to bring glory to God, and He wants and desires for us to be a holy people, so honor God with your body. We praise God with our mouth and worship and praise. We lift up our hands as a sign of worship. We come and we, we engage in what's going on in the church, and we're excited to be a part of the body of Christ, and that's why we show up so much. We want to be a part of what's going on in the church. We want to be a part of God and what God is doing in this world. And so your body matters. Let's return to the question at the beginning of our study. Is what we do with our bodies of any great spiritual consequence in relationship to Christ? And I believe that the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. And that is not just a question of moral purity. This issue with our bodies is about relationship to God. And it is not to be trivialized in videos or magazines or joking, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. What a great price. I'm jumping ahead seven chapters just so you can see something. So he talks after addressing this issue of of love, the misuse of love. He then describes to them in detail what godly love is really like. Chapter 13, he says, "Love, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's what real love looks like. The kind of love that would leave its throne in heaven take on human form, just to die on a cross for a people who wanted him dead. That's real love. That's real love. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.